I, uh, I had a friend who once suddenly felt called uh, to move away from uh, his hometown where he had lived for many years. He had uh, developed great neighbors and friends there. He had a great house that he loved there. A lot of family and friends were there. But uh, he and his wife suddenly felt really called to just suddenly to come to a new place uh, with a new job. And it was kind of a risky decision. And so the morning, uh, one of the mornings that he was about to make the big decision, whether to accept the job or not, uh, on that morning he woke up and these anxious thoughts just rushed at him. And I think we've all experienced that before when you wake up and suddenly you're just assaulted. It's like an army is coming at you uh, with all of these anxious thoughts. He was thinking, I've I've got to get the job. Uh, I've got to resign. I've got to sell my house. I've got to put an offer on the new house in just the right order. Uh, I really want that house, so I've got to do that at just the right time. I've got to tell our friends. I've got to switch schools. All the paperwork, the moving, the packing, all these things were just rushing at him. And uh, then he went outside to, uh, to pray, to talk to God about this. And he wrote this prayer. He, he wrote, uh, I trust you with my health, with my job, with our home, with our children, with my marriage. They are all gifts you have given me. And I glorify you, Father, for these gifts. May I hold them with an open hand. And it's really an expression of what the psalmist says in Psalm 31.15. My, time my times are in your hands. Psalms 31.15. My time is in your hands. And a lot of this is what James is talking about in this passage where he's saying, um, I want you guys to go from this posture of control which creates all this anxiety, to a new posture of contentment where you are at rest in the the will of God. That's what's going on here. James is talking to his church. His church has got to be filled with anxiety. These are exiled Christians uh, who have been kicked out of their home and they're living uh, in, in different cities around the Roman Empire. And surely he's quoting probably a merchant uh, from one of these uh, churches in verse 13. Uh, This merchant is saying, uh, today or tomorrow, we will go and spend and trade and profit. And notice James says, come now. Come now, you who say these things. And that come now is is a phrase that the Old Testament prophets use. It's a rebuke. And so he's he's rebuking this idea that uh, we can just decide what to do uh, today or tomorrow, what what our schedule is going to be like. And he's saying that's control. And I want you to move from control to this posture, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It might seem like a small thing, but it's actually a huge change in mindset. From um, today or tomorrow we will go and spend and trade and profit, verse 13, to if the Lord wills, we will live. Not just do those things, but just simply we will live at all and do this or that. So I want to talk about those two things. Control comes so natural to us that it's even hard to see what is wrong with verse 13. So I want to look at that first and then what James is calling us to, this very um, foreign and strange feeling of just completely being open to God's will. So control and then contentment. Uh, First of all, that that strange uh, phrase in verse 13 about going into this town and then spending a year there and then trading there and making a profit there. You know, I, I think we all say things like that from time to time. Like I'm planning to go to um, 
going to go up to Princeton to study uh, a seminary for three years. Uh, after that, I'm going to try to get a job somewhere else and move there. I mean, we say things like that all the time. You make these plans, and uh, you know, you wonder what is wrong with that verse. Um, I sometimes go over to the business school at Wake Forest, Farrell Hall, and in the business school there's a very prominent screen that has, all, it's always on CNN money, uh, and it's always got the market forecasts uh, that are being talked about by CNN money, or you know, any of those channels uh, that deal with money. And so on Thursday, um, one of them said, uh, here are the trending values of IHOP. Something was going on with the International House of Pancakes, and it was showing about how their value is going up, um, and why, and the euro and why the euro is going up and so what you should do with those things, how you should make business decisions based on those things. You know, extrapolation from present data to a future. And then um, it said there will be, there's no recession in sight. Um, and then it said it's going to be a big day of trading and big day of earning. Here are five things that you need to know before the bell. So, you know, something like that, uh, again, we, don't we all at times... Uh, fall into the habits of thinking and speaking that way. It just comes so natural to us, especially as Americans forecasting and stuff like that. To some extent, we have to do that, especially if you're an owner of a business. Um, you have to think about the future. But, but James calls that, um, that kind of thinking boasting in verse 16. You, you boast in your arrogance. And he says all such boasting is evil. Now, another translation of that from J.B. Phillips is uh, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. That, that helps to explain what's going on here. Uh, they, they have a certain pride about having such confidence about the way the future is going to turn out. So it's not just uh, making plans at all. It's this kind of massive overreach of self-confidence and self-satisfaction in the way things are going to go. It's kind of a smug self-certainty about this is how things are going to go. And James... Is probably thinking about a parable that his brother taught. You may know the parable of the rich fool. I'm just going to read the parable in its entirety because it kind of makes its own point. This is from Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And Jesus is surely talking about the very same attitude that James is. He tells the story of a rich man. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now notice that, the land produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, the rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And this is a a warning from our Lord, a dire warning uh, against any kind of self-satisfied presumption about the way your future is going to turn out. You know, your big plans for money, um, for your investments, for your future network, uh, they all have a big question mark written on top of them. I used to hate uh, UNC basketball. Um, because I think partly because they, they beat my team all the time, but also partly because their fans, um, their fans had this incredible uh, self-confidence, this smugness, so that if they were playing us at our, at our home court and they were down 20 points, 
You'd go out into the, uh, the, the concession area at halftime, and they'd be talking about how they're going to come back. And, you know, he, you know, this guy Stackhouse had a really bad first half. He's going to pick it up. And, you know, this, this will happen and this will happen. And there was just no doubt in their minds they were going to win that basketball game. And it's that kind of attitude um, that James is talking about here. He's not criticizing trading at all. Uh, He's not criticizing doing business. He's not criticizing making plans. He's not saying it's wrong to make money. What he's criticizing is this this illusion that we have of control, that we know what the future is going to bring, that we can do things now to create certain outcomes in the future. And he says in verse 14, uh, the reality is you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen after this church service. Again, it's okay to plan, but uh, please don't put too much trust in, in what you're planning. One of the biggest, uh, most persistent cognitive distortions that human beings have is that we are going to live forever. And it's even worse when you're younger. When you get older, uh, you begin to realize you are going to die. And we create this thing we call the midlife crisis, which is kind of funny we would call it that. Because you should know from the very first uh, moment you have awareness that you're going to die. But until midlife, you don't really truly realize it. You, you think uh, your life is in your hands and that you have um, some ability to live forever. You can't imagine your death and uh, that you'll get to prepare for your death when it's about to come. You, know, you think you can get everything in order when it's about to come. And, and James says, what is your life? Uh, this is verse 14. What is your life? I mean, think about that. What is, what is your life? What is the span of your life? Uh, the Bible has so much wisdom about this. It says you are a mist. And it appears for a bit, like the morning mist, and then it's gone. It's gone about 10 a.m. when the sun comes up, that mist. Uh, you are this thing that has so, it's so frail. Uh, it is so fleeting. It, uh, it's a vapor. In, in Psalm 39, 5, my lifetime is as nothing before you, Lord. It stands as a mere breath. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not even know who will gather. You know, people don't even use the word death that much anymore. Even Christians. We're the ones who should be very, very capable of using the word death. Like, she died or he's about to die. And yet we use a lot of um, other words uh, instead of that word. Because uh, I think we have this uh, fear of the reality of death. And so we just euphemism after euphemism instead of just saying they died or they're going to die. And uh, a lot of old European portraits, if you look at uh, some of the masters, uh, like a Rembrandt or someone like that, if they're, if they're painting a famous person, uh, a lot of times you'll notice that these famous people have their hands on some kind of skull. I don't know if you've noticed that, if you know anything about art history. They're often they're holding a skull uh, or they have their hands on a skull. So, you know, imagine uh, Trump or LeBron James or Beyonce or Justin Bieber. And uh, it's, a, it's a painting of them. And they're holding a skull. It's, hard, it's really hard to imagine that idea. Instead, we try to make them look um, younger or more healthy or more vibrant or everlasting. But this thing was called the memento mori. It's a Latin term for remember that you have to die. And they were very aware... Um, they wanted, to, they wanted to make sure powerful people were aware, you're going to die. And this skull could be your skull one day. And so you need to look at this skull. So in these paintings, they would show them uh, with a clear, uh, kind of almost like a sacrament, 
of, of their own mortality. And what we don't realize is that every single second of our life is a sheer gift of God. Uh, it comes from heaven. Uh, it is not ours to do with as we wish. C.S. Lewis writes, There is nothing that angers us as much as finding a track of time that we reckoned on having at our own disposal unexpectedly stolen from us. An unexpected visitor. A friend's talkative wife. They anger us because we regard our time as our own and feel it's being stolen from us. We have this curious feeling that we start each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. And we feel as a grievous tax that portion of our property which we have to make over to our employers. And as a generous donation, that further portion which we allow to religious duties. So even being here tonight, you think of this as, I am giving my time, my valuable time, which is mine, as a little gift to God, just to say thank you for being so kind to me. But the reality is you don't own any of your time. And uh, it, just, it just comes to you from out of nowhere. And it's, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. And so when, when we wake up, uh, we often begin to mentally arrange our day. Uh, at least, you know, if you're like, I, I do that. Um, I think most of us do that. We start to put in place, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this here and this here and then maybe some filler in here. And so for me, um, one example, you know, 6.30 to 7.35 prayer meeting. This will be a Thursday. 7.40 to 8 a.m. Take Cooper to school. 8.15 to 9.15 walk around the Ronaldo Gardens with John. 9.15 to 10.30 a.m. sermon prep. 10.30 a.m. to 11, uh, 10.45 a.m. pray, time permitting. You know, if there's, any, if there's any wiggle room in there, maybe a little prayer. Uh, 11 to 11.30 credit card report. Uh, 11.45 to 1, lunch with Alex. 1.15 to 1.45, respond to emails and texts. 2 to 3.30, meet with Austin. 3.45 to 4.45, coffee with James. 4.45 to 5, uh, prayer if time is permitting. And it's just uh, this crazy idea. Again, nothing wrong with planning. But there's so little margin in there. And there's so little room for interruption. And it is so controlled. And if, that, if I started to lose control over that schedule, I become nervous. And so if a person is on the side of the road uh, whose, whose car is broken down, and I'm driving by that on the way from one of these meetings to the next, I am gonna be, it's going to be very hard, if not impossible, for me to actually stop and talk to that person or help that person. And if a, if a phone call comes in, from, it's a desperate phone call. Of course, I wouldn't know. It doesn't say desperate phone call. But let's say it is like an old friend. Uh, I'm probably not going to pick up. Or if a, if a neighbor, you know, uh, God forbid, I, I, I run from my car to the house and there's a neighbor there. And, and my neighbor actually captures me and begins to take my time from me. You know, then uh, the anxiety builds. And again, look, there's nothing wrong with having a schedule. Uh, the the iPhone calendar is a very, very, very helpful thing. I, I think some of you probably need an iPhone calendar but, or some kind of calendar. But what would a schedule look like if there was more margin built in there? And there was a little more of an open hand. There was a little less control. The, the gaps between things, there, were, there was interruption allowed. I mean, making a schedule, you know, this, this really has to happen about a week before where you make the schedule with the interruptions prepared for you. And certainly this is not easy to do at all. But, but the alternative is, like, how, how is your control working out for you in your life? Probably not very well. The, all the um, anxiety and the pressure 
and the striving and the stressing that comes from getting every single detail right, getting to everything you had to get to that day. That's the first point here, uh, is the danger of control. That's what James is warning against, this presumption, this self-certainty, this demanding certain outcomes, tightening your grip on the future, uh, imagining your time as your own. That's the first point, control. Now, the second point is, uh, is contentment. James is offering us the sweetness of contentment in God, where you release control, you acknowledge dependence, and your blood pressure goes down, and you say, if, if it is God's will, I will do this or that or the other thing. So um, it's very tempting to think, as I often think, that if someone is a, is a very detailed organizer and planner, then there's something slightly unspiritual about that. Um, my wife is way more organized than me. She's a careful planner. And it's tempting for me to think that it's more spiritual to kind of go with the flow or play it by ear or something like that. But um, the problem is the Bible actually commends planning. So this, this sounds like I'm not moving from control to contentment here. This sounds like I'm still talking about control, but I, I do have to say before I get into what contentment looks like that it's not that you don't plan. Contentment is not that I never plan anything. So Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, the writer says, Look at the ant. Consider the ants. You sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So if you look at nature, you see that there's planning going on. There's preparation going on. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. That's a, again, that's, that's saying that you should um, make careful plans and you shouldn't just be caught off guard all the time and surprised when you don't need to be surprised all the time. Or Luke 14.28, Jesus says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count how much it will cost to build that tower, whether you have enough to complete it or not. And he's, he's assuming all of you. If you're going to build something, you make plans to make sure you have enough money to build that thing. So planning is good, but, but we need to plan in the way that Paul the Apostle planned, where he did it with these open hands. And I'll give you four of the many examples I could give. In Acts 20... Um, It says, when they asked Paul to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I plan to return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. And then Romans 1.9, Paul says, God is my witness that I mention you always in my prayers. He's praying for the Roman church. I ask that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So he's made plans to come to Rome. But he says, if God wills. And then in 1 Corinthians 4.18, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. But again, he said, I'm going to come to you in Corinth. And he actually did come to Corinth, but he knew that that was tentative. He knew that that might not happen. That was not in his control. Although it was very important to him. And then again in 1 Corinthians 16.7, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. So again, he's planning things. He's got his calendar arranged. 
But again and again and again, if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits, God willing. And you know, a lot of Christians just tack God willing on the end of any sentence that has to do with the future. And we think that that's enough. That kind of little pious phrase. But that's not what is going on. This is not a formality. Um, This is not a way of just doing whatever you want to and then putting God wills at the end of that. I'm planning on binging on Fortnite, God willing. You know, that kind of thing. Or I'm going to buy a Tesla, God willing. I'm going to gamble in Las Vegas, God willing. That kind of thing. You know, we put it God willing on the end of a sentence just to make sure that it, you know, it's it's the stamp of of God's approval on whatever we're going to do. That is not what Paul is doing. He really believed that everything was completely in God's control. And so it was only if the will of God was coinciding with his plans that that would happen. And he understood that. And so that was why he was content, because he knew that everything came to his life through the hands of God. And so he says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. He says in Philippians 4.10, I have learned to be content regardless of my circumstances. Content, contentment is not when your circumstances go the way that you wanted them to go. If that's going on, you don't know if you have contentment or not. Contentment only gets real when you're not getting what you want. That's when you have contentment. If you can feel uh, at peace in the presence of God when you're not getting what you want. When you're being thwarted. You only really know you have contentment when you've relinquished control of the outcome of things. And so it's not, now I have what I desire and so I'm content. It's now my desires match what I have. And so I'm content. So a lot of times it's not having the stuff come to the level of your desires. It's having your desires lower to the level of your stuff. Or what, you, what you're wanting. So Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote the greatest book ever on Christian contentment. Uh, he was a Puritan It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I know that a lot of you have read this book because I've talked to you about it. Um, He says, The world is infinitely deceived in thinking that contentment lies in having more or other than what we already have. Seeking to add a thing will not breed contentment. Contentment comes from subtracting from your desires till you're satisfied only with Christ. And he adds, uh, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So as you think about your future and what uh, you're afraid of or what you're hoping for, just remember that everything that will happen to you will be because God did it. It's not because you planned it. Your plans might coincide with what God is doing, But you've got to remember, uh, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that or the other thing. I went to uh, London a few years ago, and we had three nights. I I love London, my favorite city in the world. And so I felt this huge need to pack in all the sightseeing in those three nights. And my poor family, I had to get to Westminster and the city and Knightsbridge, all the different locations, Hampstead. I had to see a musical, a concert, a play. I had to go running every morning around Primrose Hill because that's what I had done in the past. All these, you know, you try to like relive the past in three nights. And uh, needless to say, it was exhausting. I woke up at 6 a.m. every day. I, um, I got anxious if we wasted any time at all. If the, if the lunch was taking too long, I would start getting antsy. I was mad when uh, anything went wrong. I always get mad when we're trying to get somewhere and, uh, and we, we get on the wrong 
tube line or the wrong bus. I would just become furious in situations like that because I had everything controlled. I thought I did. I was trying to control everything. Contrast that with a trip that I had taken um, 14 years earlier. And my parents had uh, given um, the whole family a trip to London. So they took uh, our little family, my brother's family, and other brother's family, and we all went to London. It was a gift. It was seven nights. I made a vow before we left, because I know this about myself, and I, and I vowed this is all a gift, and I'm going to enjoy it as such. And so I, I am not going to control this thing. I'm, I'm going to set aside my daily agenda. I'm going to go with the flow. I'm not going to push us to the next things. I'm still going to have my plans, my bucket list of what I'd like to do, but I'm going to hold that with a very open hand. And it was amazingly pleasant. It's very, very different. And I know that's an extreme example because a vacation to some, somewhere like London or any vacation is rare. Uh, these are rare things. But, but all the more reason that on that extreme example, we should pattern our life every day where the difference is enormous when you're trying to control things or when you're content with what God is doing with you in your life. That beautiful things happen when we kind of lose that grip on our time and our destiny and we just let our hands open to the will of God. It's when we move from Adam who, uh, who was desperately grasping at divinity, which is why he fell, to Christ, who did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the, the literal word in Greek. Is he, he didn't consider it worth grasping. Whereas Adam was grasping at divinity. It's, this is going from Adam in the garden, who was saying, I will be like God, to Christ in the garden where he said, he said uh, you know, Father, let this cup pass from me. I do not want to drink this cup of wrath. I do not want to take their sin and their punishment upon myself. But, you know, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. God willing. That's, that is the deepest kind of contentment. When you can, when you can still be Satisfied with God in that kind of situation, where he eventually had his palms wide open, you know, forced open on the cross, as he essentially took all of our control, all of our attempts to be like God and to seize control of our lives, all of that presumption and that arrogance and that boasting was what he was bearing on himself as he spread out his arms to pay for our sins. And then at this table, he takes our death grip you know, on our life and on our stuff and on our health or whatever it is and he, he pries open our hands and he puts them in a posture like this where we receive his very life, his uh, life of contentment. We say, uh, this is the body of Christ broken for you and we take that and we dip it in the cup. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And we take it into ourselves. And so this is a meal where uh, not only is uh, control to contentment described, but is actually embodied. It is called a sacrament. Uh, we believe sacraments are things where grace is actually conferred. Grace comes through these things to us, actually. So, you know, you may have slept a bit during the sermon, 
and uh, not necessarily felt the power of what I was saying. But um, in the meal, in the meal, you take it into yourself as a physical sign, something more. It's like the sermon acted out and ingested. And so uh, we believe that this is not just something that we're doing to remember God. It, the, the main activity of this thing is not going up in your, in your brain. Okay? It's not neurons firing. It's, uh, it's God is doing something to his people. He, uh, he, again, he puts his life into us. Uh, the, the whole story of Christianity is becoming a little Christ where uh, God essentially puts the life of Christ into you. And you are filled with the fullness of God. And that's what is taking place as we partake in this sacrament. And because of that very thing, because it is such a serious matter to uh, partake of this sacrament, um, if, if you don't believe, if you don't really know what you think of, about God, like Austin was saying, we want people to come here who are not really sure what they believe about God. Or they're, they're in a place where it's kind of maybe a halfway house between believing or not believing. Some of you might be moving from unbelief to faith or from faith to unbelief, but... You know, if you're not sure yet, we don't want you to uh, be forced into hypocrisy here. So best not to take unless you believe. Um, but it doesn't require a lot of faith. So don't make the mistake of thinking you have to be in a place of perfect contentment to take the meal. Um, that's not the way it works. It's, its purpose is to take you in a place of control and put you in a place of contentment. So don't disqualify yourself because right now... You're feeling very discontented. Let this meal uh, make you content. So on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup.